Well, if you have read the Bible for any amount of time, you quickly realize that the Bible is a book of the miraculous. From the very beginning in Genesis, all the way through the era of the New Testament, there are divine interruptions into the natural realm. When Jesus came on the earth, the frequency of such miracles increased. And this was in part to demonstrate who he was. Jesus was going to come and make claims about people putting their trust in him. And so he had to demonstrate that he had power over creation and that he was the one who was inaugurating a new age. And so you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus demonstrating his authority over the supernatural. He heals paralytics and he feeds the multitudes and he raises the dead. And these were signs that accompanied his teaching. But there were many occasions, we know, that he did not perform miracles. And that was when unbelievers who opposed him demanded that he do them. And in those situations, he always refused them. There were those in the first century who wanted Jesus to prove who he was. They had heard of the supernatural signs, and they wanted to see it for themselves. And so they wanted him to perform for them. And when they came to him with those demands, he said no. None of those opposers were as persistent as the scribes and the Pharisees, of course. They did not believe in Jesus. They sought to kill him. And so whenever they encountered him and said that they needed proof, this is how he responded. He says in Matthew twelve thirty-eight through 40 some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus calls these sign seekers, an evil and adulterous generation. And he says the only sign that he would give to them is the sign he would give to all, which was going to be his resurrection from the dead. The very foundation of Christianity which separates it from every other world religion. Jesus calls this the sign of Jonah. So Jesus points to this Old Testament account of Jonah and the great fish as a picture of a greater spiritual reality. This event that happened in the Old Testament with Jonah is an Old Testament counterpart to the greatest event in the history of the world, which is the resurrection. God delivers Jonah from the fish just as he delivers Jesus from the grave. So, if you were here last week, or if you weren't, here's the review. Jonah is a prophet of God, and he is on the run from God. And God calls him to preach to the Ninevites, who were a wicked and cruel people, and they hated Israel, 
And Jonah says, I'm not going to go do that. And he runs in the opposite direction and boards a ship to Tarshish, which is some 2,000 miles away. So here's a prophet who is in rebellion against God, and he is running from his prophetic calling. And so to intervene while on this ship, God sends a storm, and the sea is raging, and the sailors fear for their lives. And as you heard Richard read earlier, they ask the prophet what they should do, and he says, throw me into the sea, and it's going to stop. And so they do that, although reluctantly, and he's tossed into the sea, and verse 15 of chapter 1 says, the sea ceased from its raging. And then we get into verse 17 of chapter 1, where it says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay. This is the sign that Jesus was referring to. When Jesus said to the Pharisees, I'm not going to do a sign for you. The only thing I will do is the sign of Jonah. He's talking about this, which is that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and so also the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And so Jesus makes a connection with this Old Testament account, and because he does that, for the sake of the Bible's integrity, it is very important that this really happens. Jesus is not pointing to a fable or a fairy tale as the Old Testament type of resurrection. He's pointing to an historical event. And as I mentioned earlier, the Bible is full of the miraculous, and even though that is the case, many have a hard time with the idea of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. Well-meaning Christians who believe in Jesus turning water into wine and feeding the multitudes somehow have trouble with this account. Maybe because how it's portrayed in children's stories, or maybe the imagery just smacks of some kind of tall tale like Aesop's fables. Whatever the case, there have been those who have tried to offer explanations of what this Jonah and the fish actually means. One writer from a past generation said that what Jonah being swallowed by a fish really means is that Jonah was thrown overboard and he landed on the top of a dead, bloated whale and floated along for a few days until it reached land. So this is where you can all groan. Oh, terrible. I'll give you a couple more opportunities now that you're ready. <clears throat> Another one suggested that the ship found a port and they took Jonah and put him in an inn called the whale. <laughs> it's not even a whale, first of all. It's a fish. Another offered that they actually had a little dinghy attached to the ship, and the name of the dinghy was the Great Fish, and it simply means the sailors put him in the dinghy and pushed him off until he reached land. 
Yes, ridiculous. They're ridiculous because they're trying to make rational something that is clearly meant to be supernatural. This is not something that we are to read and try to come up with some kind of logical explanation. This is intended to be a miracle. It's a miracle like Moses parting the Red Sea. It's a miracle like Elisha and the floating axe head. It is a miracle like Peter healing the lame man at the temple gate. Why is it then when we come to Jonah, people try to find reasons to make it logically possible? It was a miracle and it was described as a miracle. And I think the text even indicates that where it says in verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish. I think the language here implies that God designed a particular fish for a particular purpose, and we do not need to go looking throughout the oceans for some kind of candidate that would be capable of such a feat. So don't think that you have to Turn your mind off when you come to the book of Jonah because if you believe in Jesus and you believe he walked on the water and he raises the dead, then you believe in Jonah. It's the same kind of thing. If God could speak the universe into existence, if he could make Saturn and Mars, if he could make all of them in orbit and a sun and billions of galaxies, I have a feeling a man-swallowing fish is within his realm of capability. So we discover in this Old Testament account that it's not only going to be God's rescue plan for this wayward prophet, but it is also a picture of a more wonderful and greater miracle, namely the resurrection. So let me tell you something about the structure of this text. You may have noticed as I was reading it that it is a poem. So it's Hebrew and it's poetry and it is not written in a chronological fashion. So in other words, Jonah is not describing things as they are taking place, as you and I might record something. He is writing it in more of a cyclical fashion. So I don't know if you can see that very well or not. I colored different parts of it. Um, But his his predicament, it keeps rolling up like waves upon the shore. So he's sinking in the ocean, and then God rescues him, and then he has relief and thanksgiving, and he thanks God. And so you see this again and again, and so when I give you my outline here in a minute, you're going to notice that the verses are not in chronological order, and I did that intentionally because I thought I would group these things together by their topic rather than keep revisiting the topic in all of the points. So we're going to see Jonah's distress in those verses. We're going to see Jonah's deliverance in those verses there. And we're going to see Jonah's declaration in those. So if you see me skipping around through the text, that is what we're doing. So beginning with Jonah's distress. The chapter begins with the verse that sets up This scene, and it says that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And this leads us into his prayer. Jonah 2, verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, 
into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So I went through and I picked all of the parts of his prayer that were of his distress and I wove them together as you can see in one section. So this is the first time in the book that we see Jonah pray. If you remember in the first chapter, the sailors were in turmoil and they wake up Jonah to call out to his God and he doesn't even pray in that whole first chapter. He doesn't pray until he's in the ocean. And we know why. It's because he's running from God and he's hardening himself against the one who has made him a prophet. And so he's cast into the deep and he's in great distress. And I imagine this is a very tumultuous situation for Jonah. I think the raging sea... I mean, it says that it went calm. It doesn't say how long after Jonah was thrown in it went calm. I don't think that once his big toe hit the water, it went completely still. I bet he was thrown into this tumultuous, thrashing sea, and he was being tossed around and turned upside down and confused about which way was up. And you can imagine the amount of distress that would put someone under. Terrible, cold, dark, Water. I've shared with you before one of my great fears. If you've ever been on a cruise ship at night and you just look out into the vast black sea, every direction you look is ocean. Imagine being stranded out there with no land in sight and you're just paddling to keep your head above water and you don't know what lurks beneath you and just the terror of that ominous situation has always frightened me. Now, the Jews as a people also had a fear of the ocean. They were not a seafaring people. They had peoples around them who were very comfortable on the ocean, and the Jews were not one of those people. They feared the sea. In fact, to them, in their thinking, heaven would be a place where there was no sea. So you read in the book of Revelation at the end, you, God says there's going to be no sea. And you think, why? The, the, the ocean is beautiful. But I think it's, it's, a, it's picturing something. It's picturing a place of safety and comfort. So when Jesus says something like, um, it would be better to have a great millstone tied around your neck and cast into the depth of the sea, <gasps> The Jewish audience would say, oh man, I wouldn't want to go in there. That's a frightful picture. So Jonah is thrown into this tumultuous sea, and he's describing his distress here. He says in verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. 
So he's sinking down deeper and deeper. He's encased in this big, dark, watery tomb. And it's like he can see the base of the mountains. He can see these underwater valleys. It's as if a prison, steel prison bars have locked in over him. He realizes there's no escape. He believes this is his end. It's a picture of death. Now, you must remember as you read through this account, this is from his own doing. I mean, this is because of his own sin. I wonder as Jonah is thinking as he's sinking down, is he thinking, wow, this is because my disobedience. If only I had obeyed the Lord. If only I had not run in the other direction. If only I had done what I was supposed to do, I would be dry and I would be warm and I would be safe. And of course, that is a picture for all of us. How tangled our lives become when we disobey God. One of the ways parents train children is that they enforce discipline when a child sins because you want to associate in the child's mind pain with sin. So we do this over and over and over and over so that the child is trained to think sin equals pain and I don't like pain. And so, because sin produces pain, sin produces regret. And I have to think that's Jonah's experience here. But what's encouraging, at least I think, a silver lining maybe, is that Jonah realizes that his present distress is actually from the hand of God. So if you look at verse 3, he says to God, for you cast me into the deep. I think that's very insightful. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So you read chapter 1, what happens? Jonah tells the men to throw him into the sea. But he doesn't acknowledge that here. He says, God, you did it. He recognizes that his circumstances, even those that brought it upon himself, this tragedy that he's enduring, his suffering, are by the hand of God. So he can see behind the events that are taking place that there is a God who is sovereign and even though he felt those strong hands of the sailors, even though he looked into their bloodshot eyes, even though he looked into their terror-stricken faces as they hurled him overboard, he sinks down to the bottom and he says, it was you, God, you, you threw me over. Now, he's not blaming God here. He's just pointing out that God is sovereign over these things. God is in control of these things. Even when his world is collapsing all around him, he can still see that God's involved in it. Now, I wonder, when you suffer in this life, and you will, and you have, do you see 
somehow, in some way, do you see the hand of God even in that place? Do you see this circumstance led to that circumstance and and, and my sin was part of it here and I blew it there and that's why it got me here. But, But even in all of that, do you see the hand of a gracious God? When all of the surrounding evidence appears that he's nowhere to be found, can you say to the Lord as Job did, you give and you take away? So Jonah has just gone through quite an experience of being thrown into the ocean. And yet he says, God was behind it all. And I think that's very insightful. Now, unbelievers in hard times, those who claim that they don't believe in God, or maybe they'll say they believe in God, but when bad things happen, they quick, quickly turn to blame God. They don't see his hand being in that event as being something beautiful. They see it as being something evil. They feel justified in hating God because they know that He can control these things and He didn't and therefore He's bad. But for those who know Him, it is a great comfort to see your entire life, the good and the evil, as being safe in the hands of God. So that if you drive out of here today and you are T-boned at the traffic light and you are paralyzed, that even in such a tragedy, God is there. And God is planning and God is moving and God is shaping the events of your life because He has a purpose for your future And whether you win the lottery tomorrow or you wind up in a wheelchair tomorrow, it's the same God who's at work. I hope you can see that. Because if you can't, and you can only see Him in the good, then you're going to be very bitter at God when bad things happen. And they will. That's what makes the prosperity teaching so evil is that this idea that God has appointed you for blessing and wealth and perfect health and if you experience anything but that then there's something wrong and you don't have enough faith. God is involved in all of the circumstances of life and we who can see His hand acknowledge that and hopefully praise him for that so that's Jonah's distress now Jonah's deliverance verse 2 he says I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice verse 6 At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to You into Your holy temple. So as Jonah is sinking down, certain death, God rescues him. 
And this great fish is God's deliverance. It was not a punishment. It was not God's anger at Jonah. This is God saving Jonah to turn him back around. This is God giving his rebel prophet another chance. And Jonah recognizes this is the work of God and he acknowledges what he's doing. Now, these prayers of deliverance are very reminiscent of some of the Psalms. In fact, this makes me wonder, did Jonah know these Psalms? Or is it just because they both have the same author, meaning the Holy Spirit? But take, for instance, Psalm 69.1, and tell me if this does not sound like what we just read. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire when there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So the flood, or sorry, so the psalmist is alluding to drowning here. And it's poetic language that's meant to convey great emotional distress. So the psalmist is not literally drowning but it feels like he's drowning because of his trials, because of his pain, because of his enemies, maybe because of his own sin. And so these trials come and they feel like they're suffocating you and maybe you have felt just like the psalmist. But it's interesting because Jonah could write these things literally. Or Psalm 18, 4 through 6. He says, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. So, I mean, if you lay this right on top of Jonah chapter 2, it sounds very similar. He describes his suffering. He describes how close, close to death he is. And then he describes God's intervention at just the right time. God showed up. He's sinking to the bottom of the deep, dark sea. Jonah is. He's, he's surrendered any hope. And God comes along in the most surprising of ways, I mean, in Jonah's case, can you imagine? (laughs) And he says in verse 2, back in our text, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Now, what is Sheol, you ask? It's a word, it's the literal Hebrew word. It means the pit, or it means the grave, or sometimes it can mean even hell. So English translations, modern ones, usually don't want to make an interpretive choice for you. So if you read the King James, they would make a choice. They would call, sometimes Sheol is translated as the grave or the pit, sometimes hell. But that is making an interpretive choice for you. Maybe, maybe Jonah is not saying Out of the belly of hell you saved me. Maybe he's talking about the grave. So to avoid that tangled mess, they just translate the Hebrew word 
phonetically, and it's Sheol. But it's a place of hopelessness, obviously. Jonah is in a place of hopelessness. He's in a place of misery. And in his distress, he cries out to the Lord. And I think it's sad that Jonah waits to be in this deep, dark, miserable place before he does. We don't see him seeking the Lord in chapter 1 because he's running from him. In fact, Jonah doesn't cry out to God until he is absolutely and totally destitute and desperate. And he has no other choice. Now, have you noticed many people are like Jonah? They do not cry out to the Lord until there are no other options available to them. They cry out when they are broken from an ugly divorce or they are in the midst of an enslaving addiction or they get a dismal diagnosis from the doctor and they hear incurable and they hear cancer and all of a sudden they are on their face before God. Or you notice how our nation cries out when there is a school shooting or there is a natural disaster and these very people who pound the desk and say separation of church and state, all of a sudden they're telling us all to pray. When people suffer and there's nowhere else to go, they are finally broken enough And many of those will surrender and cry out to God. Now, obviously, as Christians, this is not to be our pattern for living. You are called to love the Lord your God God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, not to use Him as a fire alarm, break in case of emergency. We are to delight in Him and live for Him and encounter Him on a daily basis, and yet it is sad if there are any who name the name of Christ who only get on their face and are desperate for God when they are in a really bad place. You don't hear them talk about God until they hear that they have cancer. Or they're busy enjoying the pleasures of this life and they just start they, they start praying when they become afraid that they might lose the house or one of the kids was involved in an accident. This is not how we are to be. And this is certainly not how a prophet of God is supposed to be. Now, I believe we will see Jonah in heaven someday. But this is not given to us to be a man that we are to emulate. I mean, Jonah probably had a nice, long, full life as a prophet, and, you know, he's up there thinking, really, this is what you put in the Bible? (laughs) Like, he probably had great moments of faith and triumph, and this is what we got from Jonah. But this is not our example. Now, I find what's also remarkable here is that God answers that cry of distress, does he not? (laughs) Even when we're not where we ought to be, 
even if it is desperation or pain or suffering or consequences that drive us to our knees, and we do cry out to Him, He doesn't say, get away from me. He welcomes us. He doesn't look at Jonah with crossed arms and a scowl on his face. He welcomes him. Jonah was not on his way to Nineveh when he wound up in the ocean. He was guilty of disobedience. And if you are ever guilty of disobedience, if you are ever running from God like Jonah, even if it's for a day or a week or a month or a year, there is hope. God will have mercy on you. God does not put you through a period of penance where you have to prove yourself. As I said last week, it is one step back. It is one step back. So we saw Jonah's distress. We saw Jonah's deliverance. And then thirdly, we see Jonah's declaration. Verse 4. Jonah says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah sees God's hand of deliverance and he believes that he will be restored even to the people of God. And so he says in verse 4, he's confident that he will look again on God's holy temple. He's confident he will sacrifice again. He's confident he will make vows and that he will perform them. So the belly of the fish was not a death sentence for Jonah. It was not a prison to punish him. It was a hospital for his soul. It was good for Jonah to be there. Sometimes God has to take us all the way to the darkest place for us to realize what we have in Him. Sometimes He takes us through a painful trial to show us how far we really are from Him in our day-to-day life. Now, I mentioned earlier about parents disciplining children. I don't know of any parents who discipline their children because they hate them. They discipline them because they want to save them from future pain. Pain of consequence, pain of sin, pain of ultimately hell. And in the same way, what God is doing with Jonah here is he's disciplining him, not punishing him. So don't read Jonah and think, well, Jonah ran away from God and God put him in the belly of that fish to punish him. That was like a prison for him. No, that was God saving Jonah. It's, but it's also discipline because it's painful. Look, I alluded to this passage last week in Hebrews 12, but listen how God describes His discipline. 
This is Hebrews 12.6. He says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. So when God disciplines Jonah, or when God disciplines you, it is not a punishment for your sin. It may be painful, but it is not punitive. And we know this because God has given us Christ. And God's punishment for your sin has fallen upon His Son. And yet, that does not mean that God does not discipline us. But He disciplines us to correct us back to the right course, not to punish us. I hope you see the difference here. Discipline is corrective. It has a goal in mind. Punishment is punitive. It is just the enforcing of justice. If you stray from God and you belong to Him, He will come after you. But I want to warn you, it will usually involve pain. So if you go away from God, you know the truth, and you're in a period of backsliding, and you run like Jonah, He will bring you back. You are His. You belong to Him. No one will snatch you from His hand. But I must warn you that often Him bringing you back on course involves pain. It's like when I would spank my children. I didn't want to spank my children, and when I did, I had no malice in my heart toward them. I wanted to redirect their course to what's righteous, and that was, the, that was the vehicle that God has ordained for parents to do it, and it's painful, and like I said earlier, you want them to associate sin with pain, and yet, no one's doing it because they hate their child. No godly person. They're doing it because they want to bring their child back on course. And you do that through instruction and discipline. You talk to them about what happened, what should you have done, and what did you do. And you turn them back to the way of righteousness. So Jonah is disciplined. His declaration is that God is sovereign that salvation belongs to Him, that we must turn from idols, and that idolaters will perish. Now, I don't like to critique people's prayers. I mean, a prayer is personal. It's between that person and God. But we have been given this Scripture, which is a prayer. 
And as I've been considering this prayer, I find some things missing here that I would expect to see from Jonah. Never once does he confess his sin. He doesn't say throughout this entire chapter, Oh God, I've sinned against you. How could I be so stubborn? I do not see anywhere in this prayer a prayer of repentance. Lord, I'm going to change my ways. Your way is right and I am ungodly and I'm turning around. He acknowledges God's sovereignty and salvation. Good. He praises God's deliverance. Yes, excellence. His prayer is full of hope that he will be amongst God's people once again. That's fantastic, Jonah. I'm so glad you have such a positive outlook on the future. But notice there's no sorrow over his sin. There's no confession of his rebellion. There's no prayer of repentance to change course. He's thankful to be delivered. He's relieved of his suffering. He's exulting in the sovereignty of God, but he's still unrepentant. How can I be so sure? Because we're going to see in the next couple of chapters, Jonah still hates the Ninevites. He still grumbles at the mercy of God, and he still wants to see those people destroyed and not saved. In other words, he's still in his heart a rebellious prophet. So this account ends, I think this should be chapter 3, verse 1, but chapter 2, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And the land is not Tarshish, by the way, it is... Back in Joppa, probably, on his way to Nineveh, where he's supposed to go in the first place. So, you'll see through this whole account, spoiler alert here, Jonah is not repentant, even to the very end of the book. So why does God deliver Jonah and go through all of this only to have his heart never changed? So just in conclusion, four really quick reasons why does God deliver Jonah like God could have let him sink to the bottom and then went and called another prophet who would have gone and preached he doesn't do that he delivers Jonah why first of all obviously to go preach to Nineveh Jonah's his man God's will will be done and he has called Jonah to preach, and so he grabs Jonah and he puts him back on course to go preach the message. Secondly, he delivered Jonah to teach Jonah about grace. What better to teach a proud man about how to be gracious to others than to show him what evil lies in his own heart? Jonah is a rebellious prophet. He finds himself sinking to the bottom of a deep, dark ocean, and it's because of his sin. And what better way to show Jonah what grace looks like than to give him what he doesn't deserve and rescue him out of there and put him back into the will of God. I don't know about you, but God has humbled me through a series of 
experiences throughout my Christian life that have humbled me so that I do not become a Pharisee. It's the mercy of God. Thank you, Lord. So God teaches Jonah grace by saving him when he does not deserve it. Thirdly, God rescued Jonah so that you, the hearer, would not be obstinate like Jonah, but that you would be gracious like God. In other words, there's a contrast between this prophet and his God. And God wants you to see that. Jonah shows no mercy. God is merciful. Jonah is unwilling to reach his enemies. God loves his enemies and welcomes them. Jonah is full of wrath. And we will see in later chapters, God is full of grace. And God wants you to learn from this contrast. And then finally, as I said earlier in the sermon, God delivered Jonah because this divine rescue was a picture of something greater, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. God shows us a picture of deliverance from certain death in the case of Jonah, and that picture, that type, was ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. And so God used this prophet's sin to portray the greatest accomplishment in human history, which is the conquering of death once and for all to those who trust in Christ. So rather than this being some silly fable or children's story, it's a picture we have in Jonah of the eternal plan of God, life from the dead. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that there is hope for those who go astray, even for those who rebel and resist Your will, that if they are in Christ, You will correct their course. And I pray if there are any in the hearing of my voice, Lord, that You would draw back any who are wayward and that You would... Give them a heart that desires to walk in your ways. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in history. Thank you that we have a hopeful future in resurrection. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.